Hello, and welcome to the Canadian Story, where we discuss what Canada is, what Canada could be, and what Canada should be. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Canadian Story. Uh, I'm very pleased to have Ellis Ross as a guest today. Uh, Ellis, Ellis, it's just a pleasure to have you. I've been following your political career for about half a decade now. And uh, I actually went up and helped your friend Dan Davies in uh, in the l- recent provincial election. Uh, oh, you're so, the guy. Ah. <laughs> I'm the guy. So um, you're running for leader of the cons- of the uh, BC Liberal Party. But tell us a little bit about yourself that maybe you know people wouldn't know. Uh, I'm, I'm a big uh, basketball fan, playing it, not watching it. I'm a big golf fan. Uh, likewise, playing it. I like soccer. Uh, but more importantly, I like coaching uh, a lot of people into not only succeeding in sports, but succeeding in life. Uh, doesn't matter what walk of life you come from. I've helped so many people get out of prison, get in the right track, I get them into school. Uh, I actually, when I was coaching the junior girls 17 under team, uh, parents would ask me to, to go and uh, discipline their kids for not doing their homework or <laughs> oh, wow. So I'd walk into the high school. And when I walk into the high school, you know, the, the whole hallway would s- split in half and everybody would go running away and saying, <laughs> oh, oh no. <laughs> wow. So I you're, uh, seriously. you're a man of authority. You're a, yes. you're a man who people, re- and you've earned oh, well, they, that. They, they, knew, they knew if I showed up in high school, <laughs> it was serious. Yes. Right? They knew it. Yeah. Well, and, and you've earned that through competence and merit. Uh, and, and I know that you're, um, you're a BC liberal, so there's, you know, there's liberal, federal liberals and, and federal conservatives in your party, but I want to talk a little bit about what your philosophy of life is, which then informs your politics. Like, what would you say is the guiding principle of your life? Well, given where I came from, you know, I was born and raised in reserve. And uh, probably when I was 14 years old, I realized uh, I, I got no way out. I got no future. Uh, I'm going to be a drug-using, drunken wanderer of my streets. And so o- over the, the years after that, I quit doing drugs then until uh, I was about 20. And then I started drinking heavily for about 10 years. Uh, uh, but then, you know, over the lifetime, I started learning things on my own and other people would teach me. So if I was going to summarize uh, what I think about today in terms of what I do, it, it, it's a pretty straightforward saying. It, if you can't help somebody, at the very least, don't hurt them. And I, oh. I've done as much as I could to help everybody that I came across that, that needed help, that legitimately wanted help, that was willing to do the hard work it takes to get out of a bad situation. So that, that that's basically my philosophy in the work that I do and in life in general. Oh, I love that. I think that's the name of the episode. <laughs> like that's just, just such an amazing line. Um, so I'm very interested in this because this is the part of the Canadian story that I feel like Canadians don't get to hear, which is the story of our First Nations. And so tell us what it's like to love this place that has hurt your people so much, but the land has been with you your whole, like for, for tens of thousands of years. What is it? What is that like? I, I can't imagine it. It just seems so beautiful to me. 
Well, it is because, uh, let's be clear, the people of today did not hurt the Aboriginal people. This, this whole idea, the guilt complex of, of non-Aboriginals that, that they have to bear, that's not right. I mean, nobody should have to bear that responsibility. Whatever happened to Aboriginals uh, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, it was wrong. But it wasn't, though that, that uh, hurt wasn't made by people today. In fact, if anything, Canada has actually done more for First Nations than any other Indigenous population around the world. And we're talking since 1982. Yeah, it didn't happen overnight. And the, the way I grew up, it, it almost is part of the upbringing to, to, to ensure that uh, we, we keep separate lives. We got the Aboriginals over here and we got the Canadians over here. So we got separate, separate parallel lives. And, you know, never should those two paths cross because somehow we, we, we kind of despise each other. Well, over the years, I, I, I realized that that narrative is wrong. It's not right. And it's not right that we should actually encourage that type of mentality. When in, when in reality, you know, there's a lot of non-First Nations in my family. I got a lot of non-First Nations friends. A lot of non-First Nations people did a lot of work to kind of help us with our social issues. So this idea that, you know, somehow we should be separate is, is absolutely wrong because Canada, uh, BC, you know, is actually a really great place to live. Yes, and yes. Regardless of our background, I mean, I went to China. That was... I don't want to go back there again. Right, I've, yeah. I've, read report, I've read reports where uh, some, you know, some kids in third world countries were living in dumps because they go there to collect plastic to sell in a market every day yep. and looking for food. I've read reports about uh, women in different parts of the country that weren't really even treated as humans. They're not allowed to drive. They're not allowed to have an education. They're not allowed to speak. I mean, Canadians have got to stop beating up on Canadians. You're not that bad. We're not that bad, no matter what you read in the paper. Thank you for saying fact, that. A good place to, this is a really great place to live in and bring up your family. Oh, thank you for saying that. I know that a lot of our listeners will. That's It's so encouraging because, you know, I think there is a lot of guilt that, uh, that we've been taught to feel. And there was wrong what happened. But to have someone of your stature, not only in your community, but also in the Conservative Party, I would say, and in the Liberal Party, British, uh, the BC Liberal Party, to have someone like you say, no, actually, this is a wonderful place to live. Like, it truly is. And I, we need to encourage one another in that. Well, you know, I grew up thinking that, that, that somehow we're separate. And, but when I first started council, 2003, uh, the council brought me on as a first full-time paid counselor. But uh, they didn't tell me what to do. They, the job description was whatever passed my desk that day. So in my spare time, I'd go down to archives. And I read a lot of what happened to my people, which was freaking horrible. It was horrible. And so after a, a few weeks of reading uh, the reports of what happened to my people, as well as Aboriginals across Canada, I just sat there one afternoon and I cried. The only time I've ever cried is when my two kids were born. I cried a lot when I was a kid, of course. Oh, my two daughters are born and uh, my grandkids. But that day in the, the archives, I sat and cried. I was all alone. And then 
in the same day, in the same hour, for that matter, I got very angry, very vindictive. And I was thinking, all right, it's revenge time. Yeah. I'm going to make people pay for this. I'm going to make government pay. I'm going to make everybody come across. I'm going to make them pay. And so I went out there with this really aggressive attitude. A couple of days later, I sat and thought about it. What good is anger? What good is revenge? Right. My people are committing suicide. They're going to jail. Our kids are going into care. We're living in poverty. What what good is revenge? It might make me feel uh, more at peace, but what's it really going to do for the Aboriginals and what's it going to do for the non-Aboriginals? I'm just feeding into that machine of hate. And I don't want to be that. I don't want to, I don't want to be a part of that. I want to be how we make the region, the province and the country stronger and better. And so that's what brought me here. That's incredible. That that's absolutely incredible. So that's forgiveness. Yeah. So you said, so how, how do you, how do you make it better? What is, what is our path forward? Well, Canada, especially BC, you've been on a really good path for the last, uh, from about 2004 to 2017. And it's really nothing that special came out of your, your governments and your leadership. It was nothing really extravagant. It was basically your governments uh, telling the corporate world, saying, you've got to include the First Nations in your business plans. You've got to include them in a meaningful manner. And so my band uh, back in 2003 was probably one of the poorest bands on the west coast of BC. Uh, Canada was in, was threatening to come in and shut us down as a council because we couldn't pay our bills. We're in so much so much bad deficit. That's reversed now because we signed an agreement with BC 12 years ago on a, on forestry agreements so we could log and share in revenues. We signed an agreement with uh, Rio Tinto Alcan, the local smelt smelter for remodernization. And we signed agreements with LNG. So nothing that really came from government, nothing really came from the non-Aboriginal populations. It was just this partnership with government, corporations, and ourselves got us to a point where my band really doesn't need government funding. We don't talk about suicides anymore. We don't talk about welfare lists. Uh, we don't talk about a lot of the issues we were talking about 15 years ago. Now we're talking about, you know, what's next? Oh. You know, my kid just got a mortgage in town. Oh, my brother went to Vegas for vacation. Oh, you know, my $60,000 truck is good in the winter, but I just bought a $40,000 car for the summer. This is freaking amazing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. It's amazing for an Aboriginal. And I just sit back and I'll give you one example. Uh, I was playing basketball at my gym, and we were just starting to see the, the money roll into our band, and our, our kids were getting jobs. And we're in, in a break in a basketball game. And we're sitting all on the bench. And a lot of some of the players I used to coach were all sitting there. And one guy said, you know, man, am I ever going to get dinged with taxes this year? <laughs> and they all started talking. And they all started kidding each other. And, and the other guy said, well, I mean, that's because you're single. You got to get a, a wife. <laughs> and the guy said, he said, yeah, but I'm single. Yeah. But I bought a truck. You know, I want to buy a house. And you know what? If I wasn't making $125,000 a year, I wouldn't have gotten taxed so much. It's not right. 
I love it. This is for a guy that barely finished grade 10. And I'm sitting at the bench, I'm at the side of the end of the bench, and I'm chief counselor. So I got up and walked over to them, all of them. Guys, what you guys just said, you know you make $50,000 more than I do, and I'm the chief counselor. <laughs> Get over it. <laughs> but that's, that's, I, I kind of think that's the kind of stories Aboriginals should be telling today. Yeah. Do you, do you see that happening across the country? No. 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 Why do you think that is? Well, mainly because a lot of First Nation communities really, for whatever reason, don't take advantage of the economic opportunities that, that are placed in front of them. Uh, and the other reason was is a lot of First Nation communities don't have those economic opportunities put in front of them. But it all comes down to leadership. Uh, I, I don't truly believe that uh, this falls on the shoulders of government. It's not their responsibility to, to kind of ensure that uh, First Nations become independent. It's got to be collaborative. I mean, there is no reason, you know, other than the, the well-being of our citizens, uh, why we should have signed on to LNG. We could have denied it. We could right. have said no. Nothing would have changed. We would have still had the same unemployment rate, the big welfare list, the same social issues. But it was a conscious decision by our leadership back in 2003 and said, no, we're going to engage and we're going to make sure we do it on behalf of our membership. And the rest is history. And we're not looking back. It's a no. great time. I've heard that there are a number of bands in BCs that are starting to replicate that, even in the, in the Okanagan area too, right? Well, those guys got a head start in us. Oh, right, right. right? <laughs> fair, they, they, fair. They knew uh, just because of the value of their land and location, but they also had engaged with uh, pipelines long before we ever did. Right. But nobody had ever engaged on a scale of what we did in terms of major project. Nobody ever done that before. So we kind of, we made some mistakes. Uh, but... Uh, I think what what's happening now is a lot of First Nations trying to duplicate what we did. Yeah, yeah. Now that's that's tough to do if you don't have the capacity, and more importantly, if you don't have the leadership. Yeah, leadership is so important. I think people underestimate the value of of true vi true vision, right? Like people under like really at least this is this is just my thinking on it i really do believe that vision is just it's manifestation right you manifest something into reality you say okay this is where i want to go it's like building a house right it's like you see a patch of land and you're like okay i'm gonna plan out the house i'm gonna hire the labor i'm gonna get the materials and before you know it given enough time suddenly you've manifested a house right and in a sense what you what leadership is is it's manifesting a different future because like you said Everything could have stayed the same. Nothing, nothing necessitated that it change except for leadership. That's it. Yeah. And in fact, uh, that process, uh, Dream to Reality, was uh, actually one of the darkest times of my life. It was, it was a horrible time. Even though we're talking about reducing unemployment, we're trying to talk about getting rid of suicides without the programming, uh, we're talking about all the social issues, but it was really hard to do. It was, we, we were battling opposition, we we're misinformation, uh, rhetoric from all over BC. Yeah. Um, my band actually went to court with band members and it just tore our community apart. Nobody remembers that. I went to a public meeting once 
where they basically wanted to run our elected council out of town. And I was the only councilor that showed up. And I was watching uh, our people just freaking yelling and screaming at each other. Those that supported council, those that wanted to, to boot us out. And when, when I saw it getting to the point where they had lost total control, uh, you know, half the gym hated me. Yeah. The other, the other half supported me. So when I see everybody getting up and yelling and screaming, now I think it's going to turn to violence. I walked up and I, I, walked, I took the mic away from the chairman. And I told the chairman, you've lost control of this meeting. Right. And if you, if you don't do something, something bad is going to happen. So let me, let me get control back for you. So I turned around and looked at my people. And then there's people hanging off the rafters. You know what right. I mean? Yeah. Yep. And there's so much emotion. So I told everybody, settle down, settle down, settle down. I said, I know these guys want us out as elected council. I know they don't support us. I know they don't support. I know what they're saying. But you got to listen to them. Right. You got to be quiet. You got to behave. And I guarantee you, I promise you, council will respond. But you guys, you, you can't talk like it. You can't yell. You can't threaten each other. So settle down. Let them finish. And just be done with it. But there was days where, you know, I just didn't even want to get out of bed. Yeah. Right. Well, you're watching your community be ripped. Everybody's got jobs. (laughs) Council's got lots of money now. (laughs) But I remember those days. That is leadership. That is leadership. I love that story. I I can picture you walking up to the mic and settling the room down. That's leadership. Um, Yeah, it wasn't fun, though. Oh, no. Well, leadership hardly ever is because you're turning chaos into order. Right. And, and that is that what that takes will. It takes an incredible amount of willpower to be able to do that. Yeah. Well, we're just, we're starting to mend the relationships now. I mean, literally at the height of it, brothers weren't even talking to brothers at the same dinner table. Wow. Friends weren't talking to friends. We're starting to come out of it now, but we're still trying to heal. But uh, I still have a lot of animosity for those that stoked the fire. That had so can, no can you tell us more about that? Yeah. What, what we're trying what to happened? achieve. Tell us, tell us the story. This is the story. What happened? Like, why was your community ripped apart? Well, because th- there was a faction of people that, that made claims that, that we were uh, embezzling money. We were making secret deals with the government. In fact, if you look through the court case, the court case is called... Uh, Wilson versus Switlow, S-W-I-T-L-O. And uh, it turned into a a libel court case. But, you know, this is what happens. And I see this happening in BC. And I see it happening in Canada. This is what happens when you you take a grain of truth and you kind of spin it. Yeah. You kind of bend it. And then you start to see factions believing in it. And now now you don't know the truth. You don't even know know the, the direct way to, to a solution because now you got people arguing that that point that's kind of vague but but incriminating right yes cancel so, culture, so right? Cancel Canada, culture. Right? arguing yeah. over its resource industry versus the environment right uh, sending oil to, to United States at discount rates sending LNG to United States at discount rates uh, you want electric cars but you don't want to do the mining yeah um, yeah. So it's like, I see this. There, there's a lot of misinformation happening. There's a lot of uh, mistrust. 
and it, nobody seems to have a handle on, wait a minute, guys, here's the baseline facts. Can we start with that? And that, that's what basically happened to our, to our band. It was, we, we just let it get out of control and we didn't actually, we, we didn't actually communicate in my mind. We didn't communicate very well. Uh, that, that's one of the things I, when I became chief, I, I made it a point. I'm going to communicate well. I'm going to do it in person and writing on social media. I'm going to communicate so much that they're going to be sick of me. Yeah. yeah. I think that's a great way to lead because then people understand your thought process. Yeah. Yeah. But by the time we approved uh, the last LNG agreement that we put in front of our people to vote on, uh, 92% in favor. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And that 8% would never vote for us anyway. So Kim, Kim John Yeel doesn't even get 92%. I'm not yeah, I'm not sure that was a compliment. We know we used to joke about that. We used to joke about that in the when the Wild Rose and the and the um PCs were voting on unity and they both got 95. The joke was not even Kim John Yee gets that, right? Like, <laughs> uh so tell us a little bit of your journey into uh, politics. So you, you you spent the vast majority of your life healing the wounds of your people. You succeeded in that. Then you decided to uh, go provincial. Uh, tell us about that journey. Uh, the BC Liberals had asked me a number of times to run for them, and I always said no. I I, I don't think I'm MLA material. Uh, Conservatives asked me to run as MP a number of times. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm not a politician. I'm just a chief counselor. And after I'm done with chief counselor, I'm going to go back to being a regular old citizen. But uh, LNG Canada, we had signed an agreement with Chevron previously, but they never got off the ground. LNG Canada comes to town. And we can see LNG Canada has got the fortitude to actually approve their project. And we signed a really good benefits agreement with them. It actually guarantees us a future alongside LNG Canada. So where we get invited to Vancouver, my, me and my council get invited to Vancouver. We're going down anyway. Uh, I got my, my negotiating team with me. I got some staff people with me. I got some consultants with me. So we're going down anyway. So we say, yeah, sure, we're going to be there anyway. So we go down to LNG Canada's office, and uh, we were sitting in the boardroom across from LNG Canada and their team. Andy Kalitz was the, the lead guide at that time. So we sit down and Andy Kalitz welcomes us and he says, you know, Mr. Ross, can I talk to you in private in the next room? Okay. So we get up and we go together in the next room. He sits down and tells me, we are not going to announce FID. We're not going to do it. We don't know when we're going to do it. He said, but this is my promise to you. I'm going to do everything I can. To, to kind of get this across the finish line. And man, it was just like I got hit by a ton of bricks. I, I My whole future plan for the Heisel was all built up in LG Canada. Right. And, you know, I could see us walking away from the Indian Act. I could see everybody getting jobs. I could see everything. Everything was going to be better because of LG Canada. So when, when that happened, Annie Kellis cried in front of me, by the way. Wow. It was, it was that heartbreaking. And so we sat there and talked and talked, and then we w- then we went back to spill the news. So when we got to the big boardroom, uh, Andy Kellis took his team out. And so I sat there for a second. I said, you know what, staff, you can leave. Uh, consultants, lawyers, you can leave. I just want to be with my counsel. 
So everybody leaves. And I'm sitting there on the council. I said, you know what? It's done. We're done. We got nothing. Uh, all those plans? No, because LNG Canada is not going to make FID. We don't know if it'll be next year, two years. We don't know. So we got to go back and we got to think of something else. And the jobs that we, that we were enjoying at the time? Nope. The, the money that, that we thought was going to come in? Nope. Contracts? Nope. Nothing. We're done. And I just need some time to, to think a bit. And so, so I told him, I said, you know what, guys? You guys should just leave. Go do whatever you want to do. Go, sh- go just leave. I just want to be alone. And then don't bother talking to me for the next few days. I'm going to be really freaking angry. I'm going to be really mad. And so on their way out, my deputy chief counselor tried to turn around and he tried to say, hey, come on, Alice. It's not that bad. You know, look, look on the bright side. And that was just the freaking wrong thing to say. <laughs> oh, no time. doubt. No and doubt. I just freaking, I just berated him right, left, right, and center. I still haven't apologized to him. I, was, I used curse words. I yelled. I told him to get the hell out and, you know, and close the door behind you. And uh, I was just angry. Anyway, a uh, couple weeks later, uh, the, the election was coming up. And I thought, you know what? I got to get to a higher place and help BC get LNG off the ground. I got to do because I've done as much as I can here. LNG means so much to BC, it means so much to Canada, it means so much to my people. And BC, they need help. Mm-hmm. So that, that's what made my decision. That, that was a really heartbreaking decision uh, for my family, for me, and for my people. Yeah. Yeah. So members of my community still meet me, and they, they still cry. Yeah. So very traumatic. But it's, it's, all better, it's all better today. Yeah. Well, that's the story. That's the story that, uh, that nobody tells about the shutting down the pipelines. You know, the environmentalists go around and they, they claim they're doing this for the planet and for the, the indigenous people. Because, and really, they don't, they don't, they don't care. It's all a pawn in their game. They don't care about those tears. And that must have been part of the anger that you felt. Big time. You know, when I was counselor, I was I was really keyed up on, you know, getting our people to a better place. And when I was chief counselor, uh, one of the first things I did was, as usual, I went to a funeral for one of my band members. And it was uh, another band member who committed suicide. And I was sitting in the audience and I was just thinking, thinking, thinking. I just, there was a friend of mine. And right then and there, I thought, you know what? This is my fault. Hmm. Hmm. I did not offer that guy a good future. So from now on, while I'm sitting in this chair, next time somebody commits suicide, it's my responsibility. I got to do something. I got to get that guy into school. I got to get him into a job. I got to get into treatment. I got to do something, but I can't just sit back and watch. And so I said this at a conference once. And so I wanted the people to stop blaming Canada, stop blaming BC, stop blaming, 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 start doing something. And so I, I think the people truly understood that, you know, if, if you trust me and you, you follow me in some of the initiative I'm trying to take you down, 
in terms of the road we're going down, I guarantee you it'll have some payback. If not for us, it'll have payback for our kids and our grandkids. So slowly our, our people started to trust me and and I did deliver on some of the things I did that were quite out of the ordinary. Nobody had ever heard of a First Nation in our territory ever buying land before, private land. Right, right. Nobody ever heard of that, right? Nobody ever heard of a band like mine building a condominium or buying an apartment complex or, you know, building our own public works building with their own money. Nobody ever heard of that before. Right. And so this is the kind of stuff that I made promises. I lived like, I'll do this. It's not, it's not out of our old playbook, but I guarantee you it'll build our future. And it worked out as planned. I'm just kind of in awe right now. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> you are a wise man. You are a very wise man. Um, man. So you talked, uh, so you've talked about your uh, role on council, but you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, um, life coaching. Can you tell us uh, a life coaching story that stands out to you? I imagine maybe the two are intertwined, but is there a, a story that you can draw out? From a from a situation where you you were able to help someone, uh, not specifically, but uh, I guess there's one in particular because I, I grew up uh, and I I didn't try to hide the fact that when I was drinking I was what you uh, refer to as an orangutan. I abused alcohol, and when I abused it, I got very violent. And just made a complete idiot of myself. And people don't don't believe me. Right? <laughs> yeah, but you look so well dressed and you, you talk so well. Oh well. <laughs> like it wasn't always this way. Yeah. But I was I was uh I was coaching men's basketball. I I used to coach 17 and under. I used to coach uh women 17 and under. I used to coach women 17 and over. But at one point, I was asked to bring back uh, the 21 and old, old younger basketball team back. Uh, they, they, there hadn't been a, a team. So I was asked to bring them back to the Prince Rupert All Native. So I did. But I'm, I'm, a, I'm a disciplinarian when it comes to basketball or sports or anything for that matter. Disciplinarian. And I understood what it was like to grow up as a young Native kid on reserve. I understood it. And the, the rule I had for my sports teams was, uh, you know, you, you can make a mistake once in a while with experimenting with drugs or booze. But the minute that that turns into a lifestyle, no, you can't do both. You can't be an athlete. You can't be a functioning citizen of society and abuse drugs or alcohol at the same time. You can't do it. And so... Everybody knew that the rules for my teams were, were pretty strict and they had to abide by them. And a few of my players had uh, been reported that they had gone out on a weekend and uh, basically partied too hard and ended up in the streets. And it was, uh, I mean, small community gets around, right? Mm-hmm. And it wasn't about these kids going out, you know, getting drunk in the streets. It was, no, that's all Ross's basketball players. They're the ones that did it. Oh, and the, and what's he going to do? 
What's yeah. he gonna do about it? And I, I didn't really care too much for anybody coming to to question me on, on my approach or motives or whatnot. But when I got him into the the gym that night, I mean, I, I didn't hold anything back. It was just like, yeah, you guys ashamed of yourselves. I mean, not only do you guys go out and drink, but you made asses of yourselves. I mean, look at look at everybody watching you. Look at your family, your mother, your dad, your you the kids watching you. I said, these kids are looking up to you when they go to the All-Native, the basketball tournament. And what do you do? You're out there in the freaking streets, drunk, staring around, fighting. Have some goddamn dignity. And so the gym's quiet because people used to come watch our praxis. You know, and I realized that time, maybe raising hell for about 15 minutes, the whole gym was just transfixed. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yes. And so I... Afterwards, I just said, I, I turned around and said, that's it. I turned around and I told the, my players, get on the wall. And that night, I just worked the hell out of them. Wind sprints, go-go's, you know. And it was a lesson. You guys want to fool around? Go ahead. But you're going to pay for it. If you want to play on this team, you're going to pay for it. Because this is what happens to you in life. Mm-hmm. You pay Jerk for it. too much, you pay for it. Quite, you know, a lot of those kids though that uh, that I coached seventeen hundred, a lot of them took the lessons I taught them, and they still remember them. Are they living by them? They're living by them. Ah, uh-huh. it's beautiful. Wow, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's it's really. Uh, can there, can there, I ask? Can I ask you? A... There's a picture of me all native talking to these young guys in the timeout, and uh, and, and, and it's a timeout, and we when we got that tournament, we actually won that tournament. We came from nothing. We came back. We won that tournament, but it, it took a lot of discipline. So in that picture, it shows, you know, it shows me. I must have been yelling because there was a vein sticking out of my. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> On Facebook, they, somebody asked. I said, "Oh my God, is he mad?" And uh, somebody said, "Yeah." I'm sitting on the other side of the gym and I can hear every word. <laughs> <laughs> um, you are. The Canadian Coach Carter. Yes. Yes. So, okay. So, so I, I have a question. I have a, I have a question. Uh, I've struggled with uh, alcohol and substance abuse, like primarily to, tobacco, like a lot of smoking. Um, and I'm wondering, you said, for, and it, it, you really described, when you were describing uh, how you were when you used to drink, I, I really resonated with that. There's definitely a... I, and I don't know if you want to call it an anger in me or probably fundamentally an insecurity that I'm covering up with anger. But how did you get through that? I'm, I'm working my way through it, and I've, I feel like I've made a lot of progress. I'm not fully on the other side. But, but I'd love you to share that with the audience and, and frankly, with myself. So by the time I was 14, I was already experimenting with drugs for a couple of years, and I realized I'm, I'm going to mount to nothing. So I... One night, and I was standing around outside my fire hall, and I just decided, no, I got to do something else. So I decided to play basketball, and I became quite good at it. And so I devoted everything I had to running, training, till I hit my 20s, and then I turned to alcohol, which which was kind of sociable, right? Only yeah. on paydays. Oh, yeah, exactly, yeah. Right? But by the time I hit my 30s, I was basically drinking every night, you know, after work. Mm-hmm. I used to have a few beers. A few beers meant eight or ten beers. Yep, yep. Every night. And then on weekends, not just paydays, I I just get 
super drunk, super wasted. And I go out and do the, you know, the, the stupid guy things like fighting and arguing. And yep. Yeah. So by one morning, um, then, you know, th- this wasn't passed down behavior. These were my choices. I decided to try drugs. I decided to stop. I decided to drink. I decided to stop. I don't, I don't, I don't blame this on anything or anybody. It was my decision. But one morning in, in my early 30s, I woke up and based on the events that, that were described to me, because I didn't remember doing any mm-hmm. of it, mm-hmm. I realized uh, I'm going to lose my family. Right. I'm going to lose everything that's dear to me. So right then and there, I decided, uh, that's it. I'm not going to drink anymore. That there, There's something bigger that I've got to think about. And that, that means, you know, being a man, number one. Hmm. And number two, looking after my family. I don't want my family, you know, to, to repeat what I'm doing here. This is not right. So that morning, I, I decided to quit. And I haven't uh, touched a drop since. Well, actually, that's not true. Because last year, at a liberal function, somebody gave me, I ordered a, cranberry soda and somebody gave me a cranberry vodka by oh. accident and I downed it and I oh. damn near blacked out oh wow um, yeah I have touched the drop in 20 years <laughs> wow we'll let that one slide yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that's that, that, that's that's how I did it so you just that's decided you just decided to do it and you just followed through with it it was as simple as that yeah, but did um, you ever did you ever look back? Did you ever like were you ever like, oh, I really wish I could drink again? Or is it just like, nope, that's just not me anymore? No, no, because I I, I I'm like everybody else, right? I tried drink, stop drinking once in a while. They call it being on a wagon, right? Yes, yes, and yes. It's, it's I it never never works when you say it like that. So I I made a conscious effort of saying to myself every single day. I don't drink, right? I just said it. Mm-hmm. I don't drink. I think it. I don't drink. And so few few years later after that, I was always scared about thinking about booze, looking at booze, being around booze. And I went into a, a pub one day for lunch. Um, and I sat there. I just got the smell just sickened me. And I used to love the smell of beer. I used to love it. Uh, but then when I got in the pub, I just, ah, oh, man, that smell. Just can't stand the smell of booze anymore. But even today, every day, I make sure I say or think at least once, I don't drink. And then that's that's what kept me going all those years. So I never had to think about, should I have a drink or what would happen if I had a drink? So it's, it's, so, it's so, just so an affirmation, I guess. How, yeah, how old were you when, when you made this decision? Uh, probably uh, 30 30 years old, 31 years old. Wow. But I was already family man for about, uh, you know, 10 years. Wow. Yeah. So it's, it's not a, it's not, it's not a proud part of my life. Well, no, I, I honestly, I think, I don't think people know how many alcoholics there are out there just functioning people going to work. And yeah, like you said, they, they're totally normal on the outside and they just go a little harder and people just assume that that's who, but they're really, they're out. Like we're talking about the, you know, the woman who comes home after her really intense day and drinks two bottles of wine, like two bottles of wine is not healthy, but these people exist and they do it every night. Right. What I couldn't understand is on the last 
two or three years of my drinking, I, I was not a nice guy when I was drunk. And yet the people that were around me, though, they didn't invite me out the next weekend. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> didn't I try to beat you up the last time? <laughs> no. well, why do you want to go with me again? Why, why are you inviting me out? What do you think it is? Why? why what is it? I don't know. It's, I mean, I always had a temper to begin with, right? But uh, when I drank it, especially if I drank the hard stuff. It's, but I don't know what, what attracted. I mean, if, if, if you were sober and suddenly got violent with you, you know, regularly, you wouldn't want to hang around with that person. No, no. no. It seems like a rational right? decision. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. There's something about alcohol that, that uh, it, I don't it's, know what it does to, to thinking. Yeah, you're right. I, that, I love that insight. That is so good. Okay, so <laughs> you always talk about it all the time. By the way, <laughs> you, I wonder. This is purely speculation, but I wonder if it's because if you were behaving worse than them, it justified <laughs> their behavior. As long as they weren't the worst one, you know, we'll keep him around because so that I'm not as bad better. as him. Oh, I like that. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> it's actually not bad. <laughs> don't I don't say re- much about my, my friends, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't mean to offend anyone. Again, pure speculation. <laughs> well, I'm going to uh, ask him that, though. <laughs> well, yeah, let me know. I'm curious. Yes, well, yes we would like to know. Um, so we are, we have about five minutes left here, and I've just. Really, uh, frankly, I say this to Zach all the time. We have the best job in the world. We literally get to talk to people and l- just learn things like we've learned today. Like you've shared so much wisdom with us. I'm, I'm blown away. But I want to give you an opportunity to tell my listeners why you want to lead the BC Liberals as well. Well, it's, it's not necessarily wanting to lead the BC Liberals uh, per se. It's about uh, going back to the original uh, topic of this this broadcast. You know, I've I've grown to love BC. I've grown to love the services. I've grown to love the people, the diversity. And I don't believe all the negative things that are being said out there about Canadians in general. I don't believe that. And there, there's no reason why uh, we shouldn't be able to make this place a better place, especially in terms of the uncertainty we're heading into. Not me necessarily, but the young people. I mean, I, I don't think people truly appreciate where we're heading. The no. economic uncertainty, yeah. the deficits, yeah. the debt. Um, I mean, the cost of living is just going to keep going up and nobody has seemed to get a handle on that. Uh, but but there's some things that, that I do uh, believe in myself that... Uh, I'm not even sure if I'm a BC liberal. I'm not even sure if I'm a conservative. Uh, I don't even, I'm not even sure if I'm an NDP or a Green. Because if you, you take out certain components of every party's ideology, there's some good things with every party. There's some bad things, of course. But it's, uh, I don't think that BCers should be split politically. Mm. Ideology, yeah, sure, go ahead, split yourselves. But politically, I mean, why? When we got the chance to actually go down a different path than, say, a path that Venezuela went down. Yeah, yeah. Say a path that Detroit went down or Greece. I mean, if we go down that path, 
it's, it's not necessarily my generation that's going to suffer. It's going to be yours and your kids and your grandkids. And so I'm, I'm basically doing this as more of a, of a way to tell BC, uh, you know what, we've really got to think about our status today and what we think about what BC is going to look like in the future. That's mainly why I'm doing this. Oh, well, I think you should clip that and send it out in an email to the entire <laughs> membership. <laughs> I'll send it to you. Yeah, he'll send you the clip. Send me the recording. Yeah, oh, we will. We will. Thank you so much, sir. I'm I'm blown away by you. Uh, I've known a lot of politicians. I've I've worked with Stephen Harper, Jason Kenney, uh, Rana Ambrose. Um, wow. And uh, I've never in my whole life <laughs> met someone that I respect more in terms of wisdom. I could say that with absolute certainty. So thank you. I I I didn't know you really that well, and and you came on, and I'm blown away. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to The Canadian Story. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at The CAD Story. That's The C-A-D Story. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends and family. Let's work together to remind Canadians how great their country is.